He needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. Tell me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome to Buck Sexton with America Now. Thank you so much for being here. I want to talk to you about shattering government illusions today. That's one of the profound effects of the Trump administration so far. Of course, the battles with the media, you expected those. We all knew that would be a hallmark of this administration, that he would fight back against the media and that the media's left-wing bias would not be allowed to go unchallenged, uh, that they wouldn't just be able to pretend that they're doing straight-up news when, in fact, they're pushing a partisan agenda when they're acting as advocates for one side or the other. What was perhaps not as expected, at least not as widely expected, was that the president of the United States and some of his top advisors, his inner circle, would take it upon themselves to battle back against the so-called deep state in this country and the bureaucratic elements, the people within the bureaucracy who think that they have the right or they have some obligation to use the power given to them as civil servants to engage in partisan politics. Now, you could also say that Trump wasn't even necessarily going to pick this fight with some aspects of the government, of the bureaucracy, Uh, They picked a fight with him, meaning whoever in the White House or the FBI or DOJ or the intel community, whomever it has been or whoever it was that has been leaking (coughs) the various bits of compromising information uh, out there, they clearly wanted to start. They clearly wanted to fight against the Trump administration. But I think we can we could have guessed and many of us did that appointing someone like Scott Pruitt to be EPA director and some of the other choices that Trump has made, they were going to run into interference and even outright opposition from the very bureaucracies that they're supposed to be running. Uh, And I think it's a good thing for us to see this and to understand because there's been a long series of unraveling myths when it comes to a number of things in this country, uh, including the media as the you know the guarantors of our democracy that they are nonpart that journalism is a nonpartisan profession. I know very few people who, if they believe that, could defend that position now. And I think that most people with eyes open and ears open who are paying attention know that that's not true. The media is, of course, very partisan. They view their role as not just telling us stories and facts, but stories that have a purpose, that are pushing us all, that are creating and molding a perception to certain ends. Okay, so we've got that. And now we also know the judiciary. Because of the fights over the Supreme Court, the judiciary is, in fact, another politicized part of the state. And we've seen this for, well, quite a long time now. But there used to be this reverence that we were expected to pay to all judicial decisions And there used to be this reverence we were supposed to give the the media, not for a job well done or not for uh, just as a matter of course to be nice, respectful people, but because there was something special about them. 
And now we know they're not special. They're just people, too, doing jobs. Some do the jobs well. Some do the jobs poorly. Many of them do the jobs to help out one side of the political aisle, the media and the judiciary. And we've seen this now with the bureaucracy. And when Trump talks about draining the swamp, originally it was really supposed to be about getting the lobbyists, the Beltway bandits, a term I learned when I was at the CIA. I actually never heard it before, to be honest with you. The Beltway bandits out of the game as much as possible. And to also, as we see, get rid of highly political actors from within the upper reaches of the bureaucracy who are in positions that allow them to institute policy without any accountability to the American people. And perhaps not even much accountability to the executive branch that oversees them because they've been given certain authorities and they make it very hard. You're seeing this now with the EPA. Even when Trump says, roll back that rule, we find out, well, it takes a while. It's not like it's an overnight thing. Now, there are two points under this expansion of the draining swamp that I wanted to make and and how I, I view all of this as generally under the idea of shattering of our illusions about government, right? One of them is that we've been led to believe that the bureaucracy is full of uh, civil servants who are patriots and who don't have politics. That's just not true. There are a lot of people within the federal bureaucracy who do a very good job, a lot of people who don't, there are whole agencies of the federal government that I do believe we could get rid of entirely. I think that's worth pursuing for the administration, which means that those individuals would have to find jobs somewhere else, perhaps in the state agency that would be left to handle the issue once it's no longer dictated from D.C. But at least now we're seeing a presidency that is willing to say, not always, just because somebody works in the federal government and is a civil servant, it doesn't mean that they are serving civilly and they are serving the public. Sometimes they're serving themselves or they are serving a specific agenda. We should all be very aware of that and we should know this. You see it pop up sometimes. There'll be some headlines. We saw it at the IRS with Lois Lerner and the targeting of the Tea Party. We've seen it at the Department of Justice, particularly in the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. Now we've gotten an inkling that's coming from somewhere in the national security side, the intelligence community, and keep in mind, these are just small pockets within these much larger institutions, but they are reflective of a rot that has spread. So we should not be under this illusion that just because someone works for a large and in some cases very necessary, in other cases not necessary at all, federal agency that they are above politics and they are therefore above reproach. It is not the case. Two stories that made me think of this today. First one is breaking news. Oh, it's fun to be able to say that, isn't it? Just broke on Reuters in the last, within the last hour that Jeff Sessions has asked 46 Obama-era U.S. attorneys to resign. Now, before anyone uh, gets all worked up about this, there's nothing improper about this. This is completely, this is, not only this is this within the powers of the White House, the federal government, the DOJ, I mean the White House and the president, uh, but this has been done before. In fact, Bill Clinton uh, got rid of, I believe it was all of the U.S. Uh, US attorneys general before him. So this is not, this not only is within their authority, it's been done before. Now, they're going to, they're writing about this and they're saying, oh, well, not always done all at once. Who, who cares? They did this on a Friday, I would think, to give the media 
a little less time to try and conjure up some sort of story about this that'll make it seem nefarious, even though, as I told you, there's nothing, not even inherently wrong about this. There's nothing wrong with this. They're, all, this is, they're completely allowed to do this. And no one, if you read into the articles on this, no one will suggest otherwise. But we should pay attention to this as citizens. I don't even, this isn't just a Trump issue. This is an America issue. That it has now become commonplace and it's a smart move to stack the U.S. attorneys with people from your own political party because not just will they be essential in implementing your criminal justice priorities, but also they set the tone for much of the conversation nationally on a whole host of issues. And they can, of course, bring suit against different government action and uh, or in favor of uh, in favor of government action or uh, against individuals. So getting rid of U.S. attorneys from a previous administration. And look, no one expects them to have lifetime tenure like we give judges, which I think some people are starting to think, hmm, maybe that's not the brilliant idea we initially expected it to be. But nonetheless, that we have an understanding now that these U.S. attorneys I got to go because they're from the previous party. And that's smart. That's just smart politics. That's just an intelligent decision for an administration. Does show you that even in the prosecutorial side of things, even when you look at prosecutors across the country, because that's what we're talking about with U.S. attorneys, there's an understanding that they have political inclinations. And now they should, we should want prosecutors to be, uh, above politics more than any other institution of the federal government, I, I think clearly. I mean, maybe you'd say IRS is in there too, but prosecutors have the most power of any government agent to destroy someone's life. Uh, as I have friends who are federal prosecutors, I've spoken to them about this many times before in, in passing and at some length, depending on the day. And they recognize that the power to prosecute is the power to destroy. Once the charges are brought, then even a completely innocent defendant is in triage mode. Once the charges are brought, and the famous words of that official prosecutor during the Reagan administration who was innocent, where do I go to get my reputation back? Not only is that true, where do you go to get your reputation back? It's also where do you go to get back the house that you mortgaged and maybe lost and the credit score that's gone now because you went bankrupt because paying for your own defense in a federal in a federal criminal trial is ruinously expensive, even for people with considerable assets. So U.S. attorneys have a tremendous amount of power. And while there's nothing wrong with what the Trump team has done here, and Preet Bharara, who's the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, one of the most well-known attorney uh, attorneys general in the country, he's also been asked by Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, um, to resign. So he's also been asked, uh, sorry, he's also been, when I said pre I meant the most U.S. attorneys, not attorneys general. Uh, U.S. attorneys, I've been using that term, I think I'm mixing it up a bit, but it's, it gets complicated here. So of the uh, U.S. attorneys, um, of the U.S. attorneys who have been let go, Preet Bharara is the most famous. And most well-known and was thought to be bipartisan, and people are going to try to make something of this. I don't think there's much in this story other than we should have, as I said before, no illusions here. We should have no confusion. 
about the fact that when, when you look at U.S. attorneys across the country and their power and what they're able to do, we would like to think that an incoming administration would just want the most seasoned person who wants the job to stay in the job, but politics affects even prosecutors. And we should always keep that in mind. And there's a reason why when Bill Clinton came in and others have come in as well, getting rid of the previous guy, uh, previous guy's U.S. attorneys is a smart move, is a smart move. Um, I wish it weren't necessary. And they're all going to go on and they can go into the private sector now. What's funny is a lot of them will probably end up defending people in federal criminal trials having been making decisions about uh, about who to prosecute. Now maybe they'll go to the other side or they'll be on the letterhead at some big fancy firm. Depends on which attorney general, we're t- U.S. attorney, sorry, U.S. attorney we're talking about here. Um, but I just want us all to be on the same page here that we now understand. We now can look down the list and see that the media, uh, the judiciary, judges, the bureaucracy, and even prosecutors bring politics into what they do. All of them have to keep an eye on this. All right, 844-900-2825. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Light up those lines, team. Oh, wait, wait, actually, before I go, I want to let everybody know about something a little special here. Can we can we do the, the action movie? Do we have it? It's action movie quote Friday, everybody. Action. Hope you're ready. It'll be here any minute. Movie. Relax, everybody. I'm here. Batman. Quote. Shall not pass. Fridays. All right. So here's how action movie quote Friday works. If you have an action movie quote you love, you call in, you throw it my way on air. And I've got I've got three seconds, which is not enough time for me to try to Google anything or anyone to tell me three seconds to give you an answer. And if it's wrong, well, then, you know, you win a little piece of awesomeness. And uh, if I get it, well, then I get it. Uh, All right, team. Action movie quote Friday. That means call in with your favorite action movie quotes. Eight, four, four, nine hundred two, eight, two, five. Or to talk about serious stuff, too. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Team Buck. Ann in Virginia is on the line. WKCI. What's up, Ann? Listen, I love your voice. I love the person you've replaced on my radio station. Should I mention that? Uh, that's It's nice of you to say you love my voice. Thank you. Yes. You replace someone. You know that? Um, so I'm told. Okay. Anyway, you're not going to say why or what happened? Nah. Okay, okay. I listen to Fox Radio from morning till night. I listen to you if I postpone my dinner. All day long on Fox Radio, they're talking about CIA, the FBI being involved in their lives, blah, blah, blah. Like, this is news to them. Well, do you mean that the that these agencies have access into the, the agencies have surveillance techniques that can get into electronic all these different electronic aspects of our lives? Is that what you mean? I mean, uh, yes, I mean, any- yeah, that shouldn't that shouldn't be new to anybody. I mean, the specifics of the platform may be allegedly may be new. But as I've said, whether they can, you know, we, we had the uh, wasn't the uh, guy out in California, the San Bernardino terrorist they, they couldn't get into his iPhone, if I recall. And then I saw the news reports. Oh, actually, they did get into his iPhone. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other, the other, you know, radio personalities act like this is news. 
Well, I can't speak for any other radio personalities, but I also worked for the CIA, so I have some idea of what kind of a world we live in now when it comes to our communications as a general proposition. They are out there, and that's the way it is. But, uh, and thank you very much for calling in from Virginia. Appreciate it. Uh, let's take Lee in Pennsylvania on the iHeart app. What's up, Lee? Hey, how you doing? Good. I've, I've got a... Uh... Action movie quote. All right, here we go. Johnny, I forgot you were there. You may go now. Uh, Tombstone? Yes, sir. Yes! One for one, baby. Action movie quote Friday. Got a bunch of great one-liners in that movie. Oh, that's that's a fantastic movie, by the way. Uh, that's my... People say, I know it's not a classic Western, it's not a celebrated Western and all that. It's my favorite. I love it. I mean the oh, Val Kilmer yeah. performance in Tombstone. All you have to do is oh. watch the watch the Wyatt Earp movie with uh, what's the guy's name from Dances with Wolves? Uh, Kurt? Uh, no, not Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner, and it's it's Dennis Quaid playing Wyatt Earp, and the Val <laughs> Kilmer version close. is so much. Yeah, it's not even close. So much better, and you really appreciate. It. I think it was, might be hey, Val Kilmer's best role. Oh, I think so. He made that movie. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, I'm glad we we kicked off Action Movie Quote Friday with a great action movie. That makes me happy. Lee, yeah, me too. Hey, I love your show. Uh, love hearing you, and uh, I enjoy all your uh, impressions, too. Thank They're- you. I'm going to try to work more of those in the show. As, as we all get to know each other better, there'll be more fun stuff, more impressions, and all that. I just I want everybody to get comfortable with the, the, uh, the Buck Sexton show, such as it is. So thank you very much, Lee. Great to talk to you, man. Shield tie. Oh, some of you ask this. You're like, why does he say Shields High? I've been getting these notes. Why does he say Shields High at the end of the show? Or I say it to people that Team Buck is pretty self-explanatory, right? My name and team and you're my beloved uh, audience. And so Team Buck is just a way we communicate online. We use a hashtag where you can call in and say Team Buck if you want. Or at the end, you can say Shields High. I used to do a lot of history deep dives on the show, and I'm planning to do more in the future. Uh, I even did a, a two-hour show on the Muslim United Muslim fleet under the Ottoman Empire versus the United Christian fleet under the uh, the Papal States and the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, in 1571, the Battle of Panto, we did music and sound effects in two hours, and it was, it was awesome. It was like radio opera stuff. And uh, I'm hoping to do more deep dives on history, but one of the areas of history that I love in particular is ancient Greece. And so we used to, I did a few things on the Spartans and ancient Greek warfare. I even listened to a, a podcast on ancient, ancient warfare. I listened to a, a number of episodes on it. So I, I really like that stuff. We talked about the Greeks and how the Spartans in phalanx formation, the hoplites, the heavy armored infantrymen would carry a hoplon. And that's how, that's the shield and how they would have to be in the phalanx, uh, essentially turned with shield up or shields high. And so Team Buck was like my phalanx, especially in the early days when nobody knew what this radio show was. And so we started just saying that we were shoulder to shoulder, shields high, like in the phalanx. And then it just became a thing that stuck. So those of you who are listening or those of you who are first time listening, uh, that's how we got to shields high. Uh, We've got a lot more with Andy McCarthy. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on.
All right, Tim, welcome back. We are joined by Andy McCarthy. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, best-selling author and contributing editor at National Review. And he's been all over the place with these uh, news stories of late, uh, covering everything on Fox. I hear him on radio. Great to have you, Andy. Thanks for calling in. Buck, great to be with you. Uh, so we got a, we got a, a bunch of things to cover with you tonight. First, let's start with this uh, firing of, what is it? I'm going to make sure I get the number, 46 U.S. attorneys. Uh, any Anything to make of this other than, okay, he's getting rid of the U.S. attorneys? I, I My first observation was that it was just slightly less than the 93 that Janet Reno in March of 1993 fired at the uh, direction of, President Clinton. And I think, Buck, if you know, after Clinton's, uh, you know, after Clinton purged 93 and 93, uh, I think everybody's expectations uh, about this change, My, you know, having been in the U.S. Attorney's Office for such a long time uh, and for years before Clinton was president, um, I, I am uh, fond for a time when the partisan affiliation of the boss of the U.S. attorney didn't seem to make any difference because there was enough of a bipartisan sense of, you know, the mission and the traditions of the Justice Department transcending partisanship. And that's a I, I, I yearn for that. But yeah, I that's a that's a worthy goal. Time. But Andy, this is what I was saying before you came on. That's now we just accept that uh, U.S. attorneys are are political actors, too. Right. That's where this is. Well, I, 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 let me put it in a more kindly way, because I think this is politics in, in the non-pejorative sense. Uh, you know, whatever you think of the, the current world, uh, the world I'm talking about was one where the, you know, f- frankly, federal law enforcement and federal law and litigation were not as consequential as they are today. The, the government was not as expansive. And the U.S. attorneys effectuate uh, policy, and that's what I mean by politics in, in the best sense. We all note that uh, individual cases have to be insulated from politics, but every president has enforcement priorities. There are often a reason why a president wins or loses an election. A president's going to be held accountable for them. And the U.S. attorney is the official who effectuates the president's law enforcement policy in that district. So since the president is going to be blamed for how it goes, my attitude is he's absolutely entitled to have his own people in place. That's the way Bush saw it when he got in. It's the way Obama saw it when he got in. In fact, I, you know, I'm writing a column about this for uh, this evening. But you know, when, when Eric Holder came in as uh, attorney general, uh, what he said was, we'll be soon coming out with our first batch of U.S. attorneys. And he elaborated that, you know, the reason they were doing this is because elections have consequences. You know, basically, we want to get our own people in. Now, U.S. attorneys, Andy, uh, when we're, we're talking about the U.S. attorney makes me think, and this is a bit of a diversion, but I've wa- been meaning to ask you this and I keep forgetting. Have you ever have you seen this show Billions about the U.S. attorney for the Southern District squaring off against this hedge fund guy? I mean, it's a fictional show. I, but You know, I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it. Uh, Andy, we need you to watch a few episodes of this. You can give us the, like, what's legit and what's not review. So not to give you any homework. I know you're a very busy man these days, but it's an entertaining series. I feel like compared to the assignments that Rich Lowry gives me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I give you I give you fun assignments. We can at least TV. That's it. Yeah, we can agree on that. Check it. It's on Showtime. (laughs) Check it out. Uh, So also want to ask you, um, getting back into the the news cycle for a second, you got the, the stuff that's come out about Flynn 
register. Look, look the, the headline is accurate. Flynn registers as a foreign agent. It, it just doesn't look good, right? I mean, I don't think it's uh, a huge deal, but the more I'm reading about it, I'm like, did he really not? I mean, he knew he was going to be a senior administration official. He's doing consulting for a, you know, he's, he wasn't doing consulting for like Sweden either. I mean, you know, we have some, Turkey is a NATO ally, but we got some issues with Turkey. Uh, what do you think about this? H- how much of a, how much of a problem is this? Well, you know, obviously Flynn's not in office anymore. So Right. No, I know. But I, I mean, how do you know, it, it ties into the conspiracies, Andy, you know that. Yeah, yeah, of course it does. But, you know, look, I, I think the problem for Flynn is how content they're going to be with the scalp that they already got. I mean, you know, he, he's out. But that, that having been said, um, you know, there's two potential interpretations of this, at least as I understand the facts, having very preliminary look, preliminarily looked at them. Um, the innocent interpretation, and, and this may, I hope, be the right interpretation, is that in the course of uh, being vetted for the job that he had, uh, it was, you know, because there was some stories about his work for Turkey uh, that it dawned on him or it was pointed out to him that maybe he had crossed a line of participation where he should have registered under the Foreign Agent Registry Act. Uh, as a foreign agent. And so he's doing it uh, post facto because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to comply with the law. Politically, I I don't see how you could be wrong about this. I mean, it, it, it looks you can't have a, you know, a, a president's national security advisor, especially with a country that, though a NATO ally is also, you know, an Islamist uh, uh, regime that, you know, violates uh, what we think of as civil rights with uh, regular yeah, they, they, and they left the door wide open for ISIS in the early days of the Syrian civil war. No one talks about that much now, but that's just the reality. And they're the biggest problem, as I understand it, they're the biggest fly in the ointment we have right now in terms of you know striking a plan uh, to or executing a plan with respect to ISIS in Syria. Yeah, don't even get me started. Man. They, they wouldn't, the Turks wouldn't let us start a northern front in the Iraq war because of their own domestic. So we, we got all kinds of, there's all kinds of problems we can talk about here. But yeah, Turkey, Turkey is not Switzerland, right? I mean, the, the, this looks bad on a number of levels. So you agree. I, I think that this would have caught, if Flynn didn't get in trouble with Pence, and Pence, by the way, has more. We, do we have that? Uh, yeah, we do have that soundbite. Play clip uh, 62 with Pence referring to what's going on here. Go ahead. The first I heard of it, and um, I think it is uh, it is an affirmation of uh, the president's decision to ask General Flynn to resign. I mean, that is the Mike Pence equivalent of a kick on a kick in the butt on the way out the door. Yeah, he's he's not given to uh, overheated rhetoric. Right. So I think that, that speaks volumes. So you think that's fair? Uh, I, w- I want to also ask you, Andy, because you've been uh, people have been turning to you a lot for your analysis and. An honest commentary on the whole Russia, Trump, FISA, surveillance, Obama, all that, all that stuff, which we've been discussing here on the show pretty much every day. It's been leading the news cycle for a number of days. Where do you see? I just wanted to ask you, where do you see the facts right now? What is real and what is not with the Russia, Trump, surveillance, Obama administration conspiracy stuff? Buck, I think we. By the time April rolls around, probably won't even be talking about this anymore, even though it's consumed us for however many days it has been. Because I think, you know, here's there's so many things out there that um, are a matter of speculation that shouldn't be. 
because a lot of people, including the president, who who made claims about this, have the wherewithal to get the information. I mean, it would have been nice if before President Trump tweeted what he tweeted, since he had the wherewithal to know, uh, or at least to ask the questions about, you know, what kind of surveillance was done, um, if he had like availed himself of that information before he launched. But you know, at the same time, by launching. Uh, he did point out, and I think successfully pointed out, that there really wasn't much to the Russia hack the election uh, narrative, and even less to the idea that the Trump people had uh, were colluded in that, um, and that the real story might be that the Obama administration certainly investigated people in the Trump orbit um, in connection with the campaign. Which, you know, on the one hand, if you think that there was really something serious to investigate, um, it, that may not have been inappropriate. Yeah, that, that, that's the critical uh, point, as I see it, Andy. If, if they are part of this conspiracy and that's real, well, then surveillance of some kind, whether criminal or otherwise, would be entirely justified, right? So, so yeah, it, it can't be so, both. So, but, no, but, Buck, here's why I think we never, we never get consensus on this. Um, let's put hypocrisy to the side. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about hypocrisy, and I've done a lot of it myself, mainly because there were people on both sides who I thought were being ridiculous when they gave Trump a hard time about saying that if he got elected, he was going to have a special prosecutor look at Hillary Clinton. Because in that instance, it was pretty clear to me that this was not tin pot dictator stuff. This was a situation where there was serious evidence of felony violations of law that had nothing to do with opposing Donald Trump politically. And I thought it was preposterous for everybody to be saying this is banana republic stuff. Yeah. So I don't want to be – I'm pointing out the hypocrisy, but what the hypocrisy means, if you play it out logically, is that, of course, if there was evidence that Russia actually did meddle in a material way in the election, which I don't think they did, and – Beyond that, that Trump conspired with them to do it, of course that would be serious enough to conduct an investigation. Right. Um, the, the, the problem we have here, and the reason why I don't think we ever get consensus on it, is number one, there's, there's no there there. There's no hacking the conspiracy um, – I'm sorry, the election, and there's no evidence of, of the Trump orbit colluding in something that didn't happen. And in, you know, I think the proof in the pudding of this is that no matter what you think about all this Russian stuff and no matter how turned off you are, as I was, about the, you know, Trump's solicitous rhetoric toward Putin, uh, yeah. the fact is all of that stuff was in front of the electorate on Election Day. And in the closing days of the election, the, the person talking about um, illegitimacy of the election – was Trump and the person who was screaming that it was an absolutely legitimate election and how dare uh, Trump call it into question was Hillary Clinton. So it seems to me that the only thing that suddenly made it an illegitimate election is that she lost because everything else that that we're talking about was was out there in front of the uh, of the public already. So we're never going to get a consensus on that because of the the politics involved in this. And the other thing is you know, with respect to this matter of should this have been investigated or not, it's really a judgment call 
based on what you think the quantum of suspicion should have been before you did anything as serious as commence an investigation of the opposition party during the election. And there's going to be a very significant difference of opinion on that. You know, the, the, as I understand the, uh, the things that can predicate an, uh, an investigation legitimately, if we're talking about in the national security realm where you don't even have to prove a crime, it's a very, very low threshold. On the other hand, politically, the specter of the incumbent administration investigating the, uh, the opposition party's candidate at the very time when the Justice Department is whitewashing a serious criminal investigation against his own party's candidate is a big problem. Amen to so, all that. I, I, t- you know, so endorsed. I, I, I just don't think people. This, I, I just don't think people are ever going to agree about enough of what happened here that we'll have a consensus on it. And it seems to me that what'll end up happening is it'll eventually become a lot of uh, sort of like he said, she said. Oh yeah, no, no. That, that people that are saying we need an investigation, Andy. At the end of the investigation, they're going to say, well, th- there was stuff. They just didn't find it. You know, <laughs> the investigation is right. not going to make it go away. But sure, investigate, because they're going to do it anyway. Why not? Investigate. Maybe they'll find something, but I, I highly, highly doubt it. But anyway, we're going to run into a break, so i got to leave it there. You're going to write on National Review this weekend? I am. I hope I'm going to have something up tonight about Jeff Sessions and then maybe something else about this one, our favorite topic that we just uh, All right. Andy McCarthy is a former U.S. attorney, and he writes up on NationalReview.com. Check out his latest. Andy, great to have you. Thanks for making the time. Thanks so much, Buck. Hitting a break. Action movie quote Friday continues. 844-900-2825. Bring your action movie quotes. Let's see what you got, team. Be right back. If you haven't seen it, go to Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We were just talking about it before. It's one of the best... TV blooper videos I've ever seen. It's one of the funniest. It's it's totally uh you know it's it's safe for the workplace to watch. It's safe for the family to watch. It's awesome. It's hilarious. If you haven't seen it, uh, just a quick description. This Professor Robert Kelly was speaking to the BBC about the uh, up uh, upheaval in South Korea after the South Korean president uh, had been removed from office and possibly facing criminal charges. And you got this guy who's doing, and like I've done Skype hits from home too, so I totally relate. You know, this I've had people knock on my door, you know, wrong door. I mean, all kinds of stuff when you do a video, a Skype it, and they'll pipe it right into BBC to CNN. They do Skype hits now. It's a regular, a regular thing that that is on news broadcasts, and they're just relying on you to set up the environment. Anyway, so this guy's sitting there, he's got his jacket and tie on, and he's well, you know, it's very serious events in South Korea. He's doing his whole news analysis thing, which I've done to countless times, hundreds of times. And uh, I, it's so amazing. The door opens behind him and he's, he's got a toddler who's like probably, I guess, five, four or five, I would guess. And she doesn't just come in the room. She kind of like saunters in and waves her elbows side to side like she, like she owns the place. She's just like, do, 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 do. She comes in. And you can see all this, and the BBC presenter, newsreader guy's like, I think your child just walked in, sir. And, and then, as if this was scripted, and it couldn't be because it's too funny, then another kid who's in like a rolling walker follows in the fir- follows in the toddler. This one's like a baby. This one's really little, like maybe 12 or 18 months or something. You know, comes flying in. It looks like on a little UFO or something. It comes bumping into the room behind her. And then you, you get a, a lady um, who... Not not clear what the uh, I'm not sure what the relationship is, but a lady who's watching the children, 
uh, oh yes, his wife. It was his wife, right? His his wife comes in, and she uh, she immediately like lunges for the kids in this frenzy, and, and tries to pull them out. And then after she gets them outside the room, uh, his wife uh, like like leaps on the floor because she doesn't want to be seen in the in the shot, and and tries to pull the door closed. But you can see the whole thing. It's one of the, if you haven't, I'm telling you, I have it up on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. It's up there. It, it's, we'll, we'll pin it to the top. It, it's the best, it's the best video uh, of any news broadcast, like a humorous thing I, I've, I think I've ever seen. It's amazing. It is, it is one for the ages, my friend. So I, I highly, highly recommend. Jay in uh, West Virginia, WWVA. What's up, Jay? Hey, how you doing? I'm good. I, I, I love you on the radio show. Um, it's, Thank it's you. A great fit for you. Thank you so much. Um, I have one that's kind of a classic for you, and I want to be fair, so I want to set it up. The woman's asking this guy what happens, and they're staring at this hotel that's just been blown to smithereens, and there's a bunch of dead bodies laying around. <laughs> and she looks at him and says, well, what happened here? And he says, well, someone left the door open, and the wrong dogs came home. Hit the buzzer, man. He got me. What is that? It's a classic High Plains Drifter, Clint Eastwood. I've I've never even heard of that movie, but I'm sure it's a great movie. But I can't even say you, I even heard. Never, is this a western? Because because westerns and action, a we, there's a whole separate discussion. I don't even know if we count western necessarily as action. Some crossover. Is this truly an action movie or just a western? Now it, I'm just it, now it, I'm just being picky going, because I lost. Well, I was gonna say it gets going pretty good, and it's it's a constant kind of movement to the movie it, it slows down in spots but it's, it's pretty well active well thank you jay for calling in with that i gotta i gotta brush up on my eastwood and my john way i'm not gonna lie to you team so i've got some homework and we've got hour two coming up the things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone that's that's why that's why he's here buck sexton with america now sharp mind strong voice buck sexton Comedy is something that these days is true comedy is rare. You don't often see those who are paid to make us all laugh, uh, talking about things, doing things, at least on TV. I I don't see it from many of the comedians right now uh, as anything other than pushing a progressive agenda. The cowardice on display from comedians uh, acr- across the board, really. I mean, there are exceptions, but it is really widespread. Uh, SNL, completely in the tank for Hillary and Obama and the Democrats. It's just a joke. I mean, the way and, and people say, "Oh, Buck, they make fun of both sides." No, a joke, an SNL joke. When they're talking about when they were talking about Hillary Clinton on Saturday Night Live, would be, you know, oh well, I just I don't know if the presidency is enough work for me because I'm just so overqualified. Ha ha ha. That's their version, and you know. Meanwhile, Hillary's going around screeching, screech to screech on the camera. Ah, I'm going to be a president. It's going to be amazing. I love being president. And you know, she's like, I'm about women and women's rights. And everyone's like, Oh, make it stop. Take Captain Pantsuit somewhere else. Enough, enough. Um, but then when they make fun of, uh, for example. Uh, Kellyanne Conway on SNL, I mean, it's really degrading. I mean, there's curses and there's a lot of uh, very aggressive, uh, not even sexual innuendo, sexual commentary. I mean, it's just 
way over the line. I mean, demeaning in a way that you'd never see that. And so it's obvious. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And, and look, SNL's biggest problem is it just hasn't even been funny for I, when was Mike Myers on? I mean, it, it used to be funny when they had Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, Chris Farley. I mean, there was some good stuff, it, but it's gotten, you'll notice, it has gone further and further to the left. It has been more corrupted by progressive ideology as an, as an institution, as a show. And it's produced some some great comedians over time. Uh, SNL's done some great stuff. I mean, Eddie Murphy, Dana Carvey, Mike Myers. I mean, I can't even, I'd sit here for 20 minutes just talking about all the incredible comedy producers. But when was the last time SNL produced anybody who was any good? It's because the cheap and easy way to get to the front of the line, if you're a comedian these days, is to play the political game, too. Make fun of make fun of dumb racist Republicans. Make fun of of hicks. Make fun of people that you know wear Confederate flag bathing suits while they're drinking, you know, Budweiser at a NASCAR rally. And that's that's the way to you know that's the way to really distinguish yourself these days as a comedian. And you know SNL is bad when it comes to this. And I've talked to you about that. Uh, well, actually, no, not on this show, but on another show, the, the other the Buck Sexton show. Uh, but this is going to be the, this is the, for all intents and purposes now, this is the only Buck Sexton show. So uh, SNL has been bad in that regard. But The Daily Show with Jon Stewart really elevated uh, political propaganda to its own, uh, art form is giving it far too much credit, but elevated it to its its own status. I mean, The Daily Show, look, Jon Stewart was a very effective propagandist, but what he was doing while it made some people laugh, wasn't comedy, it was mockery. And it wasn't supposed, it, it was also dangerous. And by the way, people say that comedy is, you know, oh, well, he's just being a comedian, man. That's such cowardice. Uh, go back to the go back to the founding of the of the republic. Uh, political cartoons, which have always been exaggerations, imagery, uh, meant to evoke certain, you know, uh, thoughts and and oftentimes humorous ones. Uh, political cartoons have had a profound impact. And they're cartoons. We understand this. And I always thought, I've always resented that, you know, John Stewart would have on uh, Barack Obama. And, you know, and of course, he, well, then he was just giving the guy high fives and telling him how brilliant he was all the time. But he'd, he'd have Donald Rumsfeld on his show. And now John Stewart on his comedy show wants to play serious journalist, man. But if he had somebody on who could actually push back and fight back and would, well, then he's all, oh, I'm just like a comedian, man. I mean, the people before my show are, are puppets making crank phone calls. Like, this is this is the game the left plays. And people watching this, including, look, including people that I was close friends with in college who thought that Jon Stewart was speaking gospel to them, they take all this in and they, they believe that they're getting a real view of the argument. And one, one side of the argument is smart and witty and cool being the Democrat side, and really the progressive left-wing Democrat side. And the other part of the argument is just idiots, racists, misogynists, morons. And that's that's Republicans. That's conservatives. That's everybody who's not on the Jon Stewart side of things. So that became its own, its own little progressive propaganda mill for a long time. And there, some of the alum, I guess we'd have to make it male, it's male and female because there's a man and a woman, so alumnae, Whatever. Some of the alumni of the show have gone on. Well, one has gone on to get her own show. We'll talk, we're going to talk about that in a second. That's the news headline here I wanted to get into, although I know I've given you quite a preamble. Uh, the other one, well, there's he's not really a, an alumni of the show. He took over the show. Well, alumni of the show include Stephen Colbert, who's at The Tonight Show, and Samantha B, who's got a show called Full Frontal, which we're about to talk about. 
and also Trevor Noah took over the Daily Show, and he is he is chronically unfunny. He's just not a talented comedian. He's just not good. I, I don't know what else to say. His humor is uh, often the, the sort of stuff you would expect from you know, a, a college improv troupe, and, and not even because he's got writers, so at least improv, people are making it up as they go. I mean, it's just it's just not good. It's just kind of second-tier junior varsity stuff, and he's getting paid a huge sum of money to do this show. At least in the first year, the ratings were garbage. I don't know if they've gotten a little bit better, but I don't care what the ratings are. The show is crap. Samantha B, also of the Daily Show family, does this full frontal show. I've seen clips. I have seen segments on it. So I've seen full segments. I've never watched the whole thing through. And I don't have cable, so there's that. I can only watch things digitally on my computer or on my iPhone. I I don't have a a cable box. And uh, she thought that it would be funny and her producers to go down to CPAC and to do this whole, uh, well, what what do you think the full frontal show going to CPAC is going to do? Are Are they going to tell funny are they going to make some funny jokes about how ted cruz you know can't can't order a sandwich without lecturing you on the constitution you know we could all kind of laugh at that i think ted would laugh at that right i mean you you think they're going to make jokes that everybody can laugh at or are they going not for the purposes of comedy but for mockery well i'm sure you know the answer to this and they finally got into a little trouble with this but let's start with the segment itself here's samantha b talking about how people at CPAC have, as she repeats it over and over again, Nazi hair. Play it. This venerable conference has long celebrated traditional small government conservatism. Just last year, CPAC was dominated by Ted Cruz supporters and chirpy little shits with bow ties. But this year, the bow ties were gone, replaced by Nazi hair. Nazi hair. Nazi hair. And CPAC was decidedly Trump country. Nazi hair. Well, the every time the, the narrator in that segment on Samantha Bee's show on TBS, Full Frontal, every time the narrator repeated Nazi hair, they showed a photo of a young person at CPAC who has close-cropped hair on the sides and long hair on top. A hairstyle that I've seen even years ago Sported by uh, Brad Pitt, sported by, uh, I think, Macklemore is the name of the uh, music act. Uh, this is not, right? Yeah, this is not anything that's, and, but of course, the media has this obsession with the alt-right, and because there's this one guy, Robert Spencer, that nobody cares about and has, like, this completely insignificant following, but he has short hair on the sides, long hair on top. I mean, you know, I have a side part. Does does that mean that, you know, every, every person in history, every evil person, I mean, I'm pretty sure Hitler had a side part. So does that mean that I'm, didn't? yeah, he had a side part, you could say that. Does that mean that I have, you know, Hitler hair because I have a side Well, a lot of people have side parts. So you're really, a lot of guys, you're thrown under the bus with that one. But she thought it was funny, and her producers thought it was funny to take photos of unsuspecting, or video of unsuspecting people, and on a national TV broadcast say that they have Nazi hair. You know, like Nazis, because that, that's really funny. Like fascist, alt-right, neo-Nazi uh, scum. That's what, that's what the suggestion really is. Now, here's the problem with this. And I, I actually have more than just this problem, but this is the one that came back to bite them. This is, the re- this is the problem. Even the progressives can't get away with some things. Usually they'll let, them, they'll let their own get away with a lot. But even progressives have to draw the line here because it's so... Uh, it's so foul and so offensive. And 
here's what happened. Samantha Bee's producers and her and her show showed a young man named Kyle Coddington who has short hair on the sides and longer hair on top. And he's a blogger and he was at CPAC and trying to share his thoughts on conservative and libertarian values and didn't agree to didn't agree to an interview. Or didn't say just had his a video taken of him and they called his hair Nazi hair. Well, Kyle has stage four brain cancer. Kyle's fighting for his life right now. And that's why he has short hair on the sides because of some of the procedure. And this finally gives a little wake up call to the producers of Full Frontal that, first of all, I mean, what they did, it's just nobody could defend this for a second. It's it's just grotesque. They did come out and apologize. And to Kyle Coddington's uh, uh, credit, um, he's spoken out on this and spoken out with grace and, and eloquence. And we have we have a soundbite from Kyle, right? Do we have a soundbite from Kyle? Yes. Let's play clip 55. Really, my message is to stay positive for those that have this diagnosis, for those that really have any diagnosis, cancer or whatever. Um, just stay positive, fight, never give up, because really that's the worst thing you can do. There's always a chance, no matter what the doctors say, no matter what people say, there's always a chance. That's this young man's response to being uh, hum- humiliated and ridiculed by Samantha, B- Samantha B's show, Full Frontal. Now, I understand how this is supposed to play out. She apologized. And I will tell you now, I am always in favor of uh, when there's when there's remorse or when there's an honest mistake made, giving someone a, a second chance or accepting their apology. I, I think people deserve second chances, you know, not if they're you know, running around using people's severed heads as a basketball, but I'm talking about when when there's in, in a reasonable circumstance, people make mistakes, especially in live broadcasts. And spe- look, I'm doing a three-hour radio show. People say things that they don't mean to. They get caught up in something. They make a mistake. And this, you can make the argument, certainly, and I believe this is what most people would expect to be the uh, response here, but this could be considered a good-faith error. Um, now, I will concede that Samantha B's show and Samantha B, they're not so stupid and, and so vile, although it's borderline, uh, that they would make fun, knowingly make fun of a cancer patient. I'm not going to claim that. I don't think that that is true. And they have come out and apologized, and it's terrible for her brand, and there's, there's, it's indefensible they get that. But they're saying it's a mistake. But here's the part of this that I wanted to make sure that I brought to all of your attention about this. This comes in a context. This didn't just happen out of nothing. This comes in a context where it's okay for, or they would think it's okay, to send a reporter to CPAC to make fun of the appearance of conservatives, their physical characteristics, and to tie them to Nazis. Can you imagine the outrage for just one second? Imagine if a conservative TV show, I don't even know what we're talking about here, if it's off of Fox, I don't even know where a conservative TV show really exists, but... A conservative TV show went to uh, the women's rally in D.C. and picked some characteristic that was common to many of the protesters there, whatever it may be, and made fun of them and said that they're a bunch of, you know, man haters who can't get a man or something, you know, whatever it is. The outrage would be immediate. We'd all see it. All condemnation would be. But it would never happen because we all know that that would be considered a call. And look, making fun of people's appearance, and I know other radio hosts do that. I don't do it, and if I do it, I apologize in advance. And if I'm called out for it, I'll apologize for it after the fact, too. You don't make fun of the way people look. 
But making fun of the way conservatives look or their haircuts, some people are going to say, well, a haircut is a choice, Buck. It's different than physical characteristics. Now we're getting into a, okay, we want to play that game? Well, they weren't just saying, look at their goofy haircuts. They were saying, look at their Nazi haircuts because they're like a bunch of little Nazis in training at this CPAC conference. That's disgraceful. It's baseless. But it goes to show you the mentality here, which is that here's a comedy show showing up at a, at a conference of young conservatives. And instead of finding things that everybody can laugh at, which would not be that hard, instead of doing the job of a comedian, if the job of a journalist is to tell truth and to speak about the facts and to hold power accountable, the job of a comedian is to make everybody laugh. Instead of doing that job, they decided to mock a bunch of young people because they're conservatives and they thought they could get away with it and they burned their hand this time because they went too far. But we shouldn't just look at that incident. We should look at their general attitude. And that is that making fun of conservatives, calling them Nazis and making fun of the way they look is ha ha ha. Well, it's not funny. Bunch of jerks. We'll be right back. 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. We got every line lit up now with Action Movie Quote Friday. Quotes aplenty, I am sure, but we'll be making some space here as we take calls, so uh, dial in. Let's get uh, Daniel in California, KFNY. Hey, how you doing, Buck? Good. How are you, Daniel? I'm doing all right. It's on my way home. Good stuff, sir. Excited for the weekend, I assume. So what's on your mind? Uh... Yeah, I'm, uh, I got a movie quote for you, or I guess action movie. Uh, I'm hoping you get it. So All right. Here it goes. Ready? Yep. Hey, Gunny. What, we all look, how are we supposed to look like you? You adapt. You overcome. Now, get those shirts off right now. Right? Face. What yeah. movie? Yeah. Three. Hit it, yeah. You got me. What is it? It's Heartbreak Ridge. Ah, all these. Can, we're gonna have to start having like a like a, a cap on how old the movie can be. I, I was born in '81. Everybody, come on, it's crazy. I, but, I was born. I was born in '87. The movie was made in '86. No, I, I know. Oh, it was. Oh, wow. I don't even know what I'm talking about. That. I thought that was an oldie. Then Heartbreak Ridge. Who's in that? Uh, it's Clint Eastwood. Yeah, the Eastwood. Okay. You guys are going to, I'm just going to say this right now. You guys are all going to get me with the Eastwood movies. So you got to give me some time to catch up on that. I'm really thinking more like the classic 80s and 90s action movies, um, which, uh, you know, the the West, the Eastwood Westerns, uh, people love to call them with Eastwood Westerns and John Wayne. And I'm like, I don't know if John Wayne would be con- in, considered an action movie. Like, there's not a lot of close-ups of John Wayne's bulging biceps as he's, like, throwing dudes through the window. You know, it's a little more of a classic uh, cinema vibe. Right. I hear you, Daniel. But, yo, man, have a great weekend out in California. I'm sure it's lovely. And uh, uh, thanks for calling in. Call back soon. John in Texas. You're on the Buck Saxon Show. What's up? Shields high, Buck. Shields high, John. Sex Buckton. Are you ready? Yes, sir. (laughs) It's in that place I put that thing that time. Oh, hackers. (laughs) What's up? What's up, son? Check it. Oh! Hackers. Yeah, that's right. Damn, not even... I did not think you would get that. I know. I'm amazing. It's not like, that's not even a good movie, oh! but I've seen it. <laughs> oh. oh, I did not think you would get that. Booyah, dude. What can I tell you? The, the boy's got skills. You understand? I've been, I've been playing this game for a while. I got I got the ninth, hey, de- I got, I got a ninth degree black belt in action movie quotes. But that's a, that's a fun that one. That was Angelina Jolie before anybody knew who she was. 
nobody knew who she was. Yeah, I know. I, I was a fan. I'll tell you, I was an early, I was an early adopter. I, I knew Angelina Jolie was going to go big time, and I knew Jessica Biel was going to go big time before either of them got huge. But uh, and also, what yeah, the guy Andrew, I I had you. that guy, I forget, yeah. he was in that, and then he was in like Summer Catch, and you know, he was in the the Scream movie, and he kind of faded out. Andrew something or other was his name. But anyway, John in Texas, yeah, yeah. man, that's a great one. That was fun. That was obscure, and I'm glad I was able to knock it out of the park for you. Thank you for calling in. So you've got to mix it up here. We'll get in, we'll get into some more. Uh, don't worry, we got some serious analysis coming up, and certainly in the uh, final hour of the show today, we got to talk about some serious stuff. But action movie quote Fridays when we can let it rip a bit. Um, with that in mind, as you can tell, we got some spots open now. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. If you're on the line, stay. We'll get to you as soon as we can. And uh, if you want to call in, it's eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. And uh, we. I got a whole bunch of subjects I want to talk to you about. I guess we can talk about the jobs numbers a little bit, maybe. I don't know. I, I find jobs numbers to be uh, over-politicized uh, right away without be- without any real analysis of what's going on. It's, everyone's just like, oh, it's it's because my guy's great. Oh, no, it's because the last guy's great. We can talk jobs, though, a little bit. We've also got uh, the burger-flipping robot. We've got the EPA chief facing some heat. We've got illegal immigrants dropping by 40% in terms of cross... I got a lot of stories, and I don't have that much time, so we're going to have to see what we can get to here for the rest of the show. Buck Sexton with America Now is going to continue. Having a great time with you all. Thank you very much for being here. Stay with me. And, uh, oh, also, if you want, send me a tweet at Buck Sexton. I live tweet during the show. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. There are some times where I think that uh, SNL can be funny, not to go too long on, on this one subject, but I just want to say that the the with an exception that I've noted before, and I won't get into the exception now, but some of the Sean Spicer stuff that they've done is is act- is, is pretty funny and is what we expect, right? I mean, that's... Uh, the, the Sean Spicer stuff is, has been pretty... Melissa McCarthy, Sean Spicer has been pretty funny. And I've always said, you know, y- you got to lean into this stuff. I mean, this is like when I was told... Um, you know, even in the even in the uh, in the agency, if if you get a nickname from like a senior, from a senior officer, and you, you know you're out you're out in the field somewhere, uh, you got to roll with it. You know, I mean, you, you got to go with. It. You don't want to be the guy who's like, oh, that nickname undermines me. I don't like it. Uh, so you know, and just in general, and this is true of the Bush administration. Um, this was true. Uh, you know, he would he would give people that he really liked a nickname. Point here being, Sean Spicer, people calling him spicy is, I think, uh, something that he needs to lean into. I think that he should just be like, yeah, that's right, spicy. He needs to, you need to own it. You can't run away from that kind of stuff. You run away, and it then, then they really want to make a thing of it, right? So he's got to just sort of go. I mean, not in a way that's going to undermine himself, but, you know, he's got to own it. And I think he did. He, he said today during the press conference, well, in reference to the Melissa McCarthy send-up of him, uh, he said the following, play clip 60. I mean... Don't make me make the podium move. Um, I, I mean, honest to God, like every every reporter here reported out that we had 235,000 jobs, 4.7. There isn't a TV station that didn't go live to it. So to tweet out, great way to start a Friday. I think yes, the president was excited to see more Americans back to work. Uh, I don't think that's exactly a market disruption. Uh, now. 
Look, it was it was a funny moment for him. I I, I do want to tell him. Look, he's not a professional comedian, obviously, though he is a communicator. Try not to try not to laugh too much at his own joke. There, it was okay. I'm not saying it was a big deal, but you know, you gotta you gotta own it. You know, you gotta act like you've been there before a little bit. Um, and I, I but I think he did a pretty good job. And uh, you know, he he was talking about the jobs numbers, as you know. We'll we'll get into this just just briefly here. The jobs numbers for today were very strong. You hear this from a lot of places. 235,000. The U.S. economy added 235,000 workers during President Trump's first full month in office. Now, as surely as, you know, night follows day, uh, there were people writing at the the New Republic, which I'm, I believe the New Republic now has a circulation that is at least in the hundreds. It is at least in the hundreds uh, that they wrote um, that uh, I saw a tweet from them, somebody over there. That well, this is that Trump should thank Obama for this. Now we need to keep it real here. The truth is that presidents get more credit than they deserve for good economies and m- more blame than, than they deserve for bad economies. That's just a generally accurate. The same way in the intelligence community, we always were told, and this is also true: there are only intelligence failures and policy successes. Don't ever forget that one, by the way. Whenever something really good happens, and it comes to you know the 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 Bin Laden raid. That was Obama's success, the administration claimed. And, I mean, it was really the, you know, CIA's success in the bin Laden raid. But, uh, and, and SEAL Team 6 and Armed Forces. But I'm saying, you know, that that's who, <laughs> the, the way that it was posed to us, it was almost like Obama was, you know, rappelling down from a Black Hawk helicopter himself. And he had a silenced MP5 and he was, you know, taking care of, uh, taking care of business there. Um, but. In reality, it was intelligence community and, and the operators of uh, U.S. special forces. And uh, but this is true of all. This is true of all. That's not a that's not unique to the Obama administration. It's true of all administrations that take more credit for uh, military successes than and, and, and intelligence successes than are due the specific uh, chief executive. And then on the other side of things with the economy. Uh, oh, and by the way, when things go bad, of course, all the intelligence was wrong. You know who? Yeah, Bush. Look, Bush took a lot of heat for the Iraq war. That's because he was a Republican. If it had been a Democrat using intelligence to go into Iraq that was later found to be faulty, trust me, it would have all been on the intelligence community. And a, a fair amount of the blame was. Um, where was I on this? Oh, yes. So with the economic stuff, this is all going to be and there's very astute analysis you can read. And there's details about oh, but they need to revise and it takes six months for policies to even show any effect in the labor market. But there are other people who are going to say, hold on a second. Uh, this is how people are hiring. There are jobs out there now that were not there before. And there's a lot of indicators that one can point to that suggest that the Trump administration is uh, increasing confidence and is being particularly uh, is particularly pro-business or is considered to be pro-business. So um, that's I, I think that has to be factored into all of this. Uh, that's at least the argument that one can make. But back to Spicer for a second here. You got Sean Spicer, who's saying that or, or who's you know taking a moment to be a little funny about this. And I just think that's always that's always the way to go. He should embrace the whole spicy thing as much as he can. And it is possible for there to be comedy about the administration, even that all of us can laugh at. And we can make that separation between mean-spirited and and funny, and that's not a hard thing to do. And especially for professional comedians, they know they they know the difference. I'm not saying they won't make that ones with good intention won't won't make mistakes, but the Sean Spicer stuff was is overall with a couple little exception here or there, or a pretty clear exception here or there, 
overall has been uh, has been funny, and uh, and I appreciate that that's become a part of the narrative of the administration now. It is it is amusing stuff. Uh, all right, I got a ton of calls up on the board, and it's also it's actually movie quote Friday, but it's also Freestyle Friday, which means that we're just going to roll with it and take the calls as they come. And so I want to get to more of your calls. Uh, we'll do that uh, right out. And then we'll have some guests coming up in the third hour, too. Be right back. Stay with me. Welcome back, Team Buck. Uh, I forgot to play. I got so wrapped up with uh, the Spicer and Spicy and that's the Spicy I meet the ball um, uh, that I forgot to play. On the jobs numbers, This is you're, there's a lot of politicizing of this stuff that happens. I just want to play this, and then we'll take some of your calls. Uh, here's Spicer in the press conference today on, on how Trump in the past said jobs numbers were phony. And, well, this is his response now, 61. Past the president has referred to particular job reports as phony or totally fiction. Does the president believe that this jobs report was accurate and a fair way to measure the economy? Yeah, I, I talked to the president prior to this, uh, and he said to quote him very clearly, they may have been phony in the past, but it's very real now. <laughs> I like it. I mean, I, I, it's funny because it is funny. I don't know if, the, I mean, the president is mostly kidding with that, I think. I mean, you know, what, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was funny, though. So, look, I think Spicer, just like everything else, um, you know, Spicer's getting uh, acclimated uh, with this administration. He's he's getting his sea legs under him, uh, and many of the people in administration are. And it looks like without, I don't, I don't like to be yet another uh, person who's, piling on to uh, General Flynn has obviously had a rough, you know, some of these senior senior figures, look, General Flynn's had a rough go reputationally, but he's, with his service to his country and in the military, you know, I, I think he's going to, everything is going to be fine. And, and when people look back on his record overall, there's, it's a, it's a lot to be proud of and it's very honorable. Um, you know, I've seen their other, I think it was Bernie Carrick, who was the MIPD, MIPD, New York Police Department commissioner, who is going to be Department of Homeland Security chief. And in the background investigation of that, they found some stuff and all of it. He ended up going to federal prison for four years, Bernie Carrick. So, you know, this stuff. And if, if he hadn't been up for that job, I mean, fate can be so cruel. If he hadn't been up for the DHS job, he would have just retired and been making probably seven figures as a security consultant and be the you know, revered former NYPD commissioner. And But, you know... You put yourself up there, and that this is why a lot of really good people. It's unfortunate for our country. It's unfortunate for all of us. A lot of really good people won't take these jobs because they don't want to put themselves and their families through the heat, and they don't want to take the risk that somebody decides to go after them on, and yeah, on something real or imagined. All right, uh, I got a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of calls coming in here. Uh, Tom in Ohio, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Yeah, great program, Buck. Thank you. Uh, by the way, I, I really appreciate uh, you over the uh, previous two hosts of the show. Uh, but but anyway, uh, you were talking uh, about Saturday Night Live and uh, to become liberal. You know, a chill went through me because uh, uh, on the uh, 1975 episode when they first started, they reran that at the 40th anniversary, which would have been two years ago. And there were three particular skits in there. One, George Carlin opened up with uh, There Is No God. You know, he did a bit on that. 
And then they had uh, towards the middle they had a one of their commercial bits, you know, one of their commercial skits, and it was two guys who were obviously homosexual. And keep in mind, at that time, homosexuality was illegal, and now it's almost to the point where uh, you have a situation where if you if you don't embrace it and and uh, you know don't uh, see it as mainstream, uh, that that you, you're almost viewed as a criminal. And then the third one was a, a dating service where about a 45 year old guy was dating about an eight or 10 year old girl. And, you know, wait, this was on SNL on the very first episode. Right. Huh? 40, 40 years ago. That's and, and, you know, I mean, I got to see these. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's whoa. Because the the thing is, and, and you know, humor can be uh, uh, used as a weapon as a tool. Of course. Oh, I mean, every tyrant fears mockery. Uh, fears mockery oftentimes more than democracy. I mean, they they really fear being ridiculed. And and all those three things, I won't say they they've come true, but you know, we are far more secular than than we had were forty years ago. Uh, homosexuality, as I pointed out, you know, is is yeah. You know, same sex marriage is the law of the land. I mean, it is the law of the land right. now. It is it is it in all fifty states. But but they've uh, and what was the thing you said? You said dating a ten year old. That well, that's it, the one that I'm like they, they thought that was funny. I, I mean I got to see this well, SNL sketch, but you know also had Meryl Streep uh, at a, uh, a performing art. I, I forget what the uh, award ceremony was, but uh, honoring uh, Roman Polanski in Abstentia, and you know everybody gave him a standing ovation. And, and yeah, I'm, well the, the Roman Polanski thing. I mean that's you know the, the the double standards for people who are in good standing with the left and what they can get away with. You know, look at a lot of the big celebrities that have just, I mean, and have gotten away with stuff for decades. Uh, yeah, it's, he, it's, he was a, yeah, of course. I mean, he, he was a, I mean, he was, uh, he fled the justice system I and mean, he's, he still wanted, I mean, they're still trying to extradite him. But anyway, Tom, I, I, I got to go, buddy, but thank you for calling in from Ohio. Uh, we also have Jason in Arizona. Jason, you're on the Buck Sexton show. Do we not have Jason in Arizona? Oh, I guess we, uh, Jason, we were excited to talk to you, but you're gone. We got another Ohio caller, Rich. What's up, Rich? Hey, Buck, what's happening? Just rocking and rolling on a Friday, on a Friday, sir. How about you? Uh, very much the same. Nice. Much. Good. Hope you're excited uh, for your weekend. What's on your mind? Okay, I got a movie quote for you. All right, up. All right here we go. Get the buzzer ready, Dramos, or the bell, because we know <laughs> I'm going to hit it. The year is 1975, a little before your time. But I think you're going to get this. Okay. I mean, if it's black and white, it's not an action movie. Let me just say, I know that's not the 70s, but that's a rule. That's a rule, all right? If it's black and white, it's not an action movie. But go ahead. I'll tell her now. Come on now. The protagonist is visibly shaken upon his first encounter with the antagonist. Okay, remember, 1975. And he says... We're going to need a bigger boat. Oh, Jaws, come on. Come on. Okay. Well, hey, look, it's, I mean, and look, I'm going to be honest with you, Rich. I think that goes in it. It's a great quote, so I give you a high five on that one, and I, and I thank you for calling in. But, guys and gals, Jaws is a suspense or thriller or it's even, I think, sometimes listed in the horror section, which is not, I don't think that's accurate, but I've seen it in movies. I spent a lot of time in VHS stores with my siblings growing up just looking at all the movies, and I spent a lot of time watching movies with them, obviously. Um, but, yeah, Jaws Jaws is a, 
yeah, I'm going to get a a judge's ruling on this. I mean, to to everybody, to to everybody here, to the the, the Freedom Hut team, is Jaws thumbs up, thumbs down? Is Jaws an action movie? No, no, I'm getting thumbs, I'm getting thumbs down across the board. Jaws is, now look, it's a great quote. And so I give credit. Thriller. Yeah, I got Thriller here. No, we got to go, we got to go with Thriller movie. But it's all right. It's a good quote. And I appreciate I appreciate the uh, participation of all members of Team Buck. Even when they even when members of, members of the team call in with something from Gone with the Wind, it is a classic. It is just not an action movie. But when so we can get the genre stared here, everybody. When we're thinking action movie, all right, we're thinking Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Bronson's got to be in there. Dolph Lundgren. I put Van Damme in the category. Bruce Willis, Keanu Reeves, action movies, action movies. Like where there's so much where guys are shooting and shooting and never reloading, where they're shirtless for no apparent reason and just fighting tons of dudes, where ninjas appear in places very far from Japan for no apparent reason. Action movies, people. All right. Uh, we got to talk about what about policy? Everyone's calling in with action movie quotes. We got time for one or two more. Then we've got a couple of guests. We're going to talk about some more serious stuff in the next hour. So it's going to be a little bit of a little bit of a switch up. But all right, uh, Jason in Arizona. Do, are we back here with Jason? All right, Jason, what's up? Yes. All right, I got an action movie quote for you. And this action movie, the female is the star. Okay, and here's a scene real quick. All kinds of hell just broke loose. The mission went wrong. You got a male and a female in the car. They start staring at each other, and the female says to the male, I never did seem to mind the little things. There you go. Uh, ah, I feel like I would have got it if I had more time. What is it? It's Bridget Fonda in Point of No Return, and it's the American version of La Femme. Oh, I've se- I have I've actually Bad seen I've movie. seen that many times. She is a fan. She's a fan of of Nina Simone in the movie, as am I in real life. Yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's not. That's and a good the, movie. Gabriel Byrne. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's that's pretty good. It's a pretty good remake, actually. The the, the original is, as I'm yeah, sure you know, way better. Oh yeah, but that one part where everything the mission went wrong and the cleaner had to come to clean everything, and that scene is when they were driving in the car on that windy road, and he started realizing that he was going to have to clean her. <laughs> Oh, I love that movie. Anyways, she'll tie. By, yeah, she'll tie. She'll tie, Jason. By clean, he meant it means to eliminate. By the way, um, just FYI, everybody. In the movie, he's going to have to eliminate that uh, female protagonist as well. Uh, we, oh, we got one more, and then we, and then we got we'll have cleared the board for a little bit here. Lori in New Jersey, great to talk to you, Lori. What's up? Yo, Buckman. What's Hope up? You're doing well. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, of course. All right, we I'm got one more. I'm going to finish. Uh, I'm, we're going to finish up your action quote week with this. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Predator, one of the best action movies of all time. In my top yes. ten, maybe my top five. Yes. Bam. Yes. yes. Can you just, I mean, Lori, right. you're, you're, you're a lady, you're a lawyer. Can you just let everybody listening know that Predator is like one of the, if you haven't seen it, Netflix it, whatever you got to do, it should, you should watch it. Do what you can do. You got to watch it. Yeah. All right. Great quote, Lori. One of my favorite action movies of all time. Thank you for... We're finishing strong tonight on Action Movie Quote Friday. Big hug, Lori. Great to talk to you. Thanks for calling in from New Jersey. Um, All right, team. The music means we're already on the third hour. The show is flying by tonight. Um, We will have some space up on the lines here. we got a guest coming up uh, next. Assuming our 
guest calls in, which is always, that's always fun on a live radio show. Are we, we going to get the guest? We'll probably get the guest. Uh, and then we have another guest later on that'll be fascinating, but it'll be a very, a, a much more serious conversation we've been having because we, we have many different, uh, many different uh, flavors and many different uh, vibes in the Freedom Hut. So we'll be hitting that too. Um, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. For those of you listening, got the video, the really funny video at the top of that page. Click like or follow on that page, please, so we can all talk to each other. That is how Team Buck communicates uh, during the week on social media. And uh, we got hour three, so stay right there. Be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Welcome back, team. A lot to discuss with you this uh, this day here in the Freedom Hut. Um, but first, I just want to say, please do, if you uh, are listening, uh, especially those of you who are, who are digital listeners, or actually just all of you, it doesn't matter, um, download the show. Subscribing is the best thing to do. Uh, iTunes, you can subscribe. So you click uh, in the iTunes search bar, you type in Buck Sexton with America Now. A couple of shows may pop up. You want Buck Sexton with America Now and click subscribe and then every day it'll just populate in your iTunes and you can listen to the show whenever you like in whole go for it and also obviously the iHeartRadio app that's the way to do it and um, you know do it that way so um, you can listen in on the, do we have our guest by the way we do okay uh, yes let's take let's take our guest well, we have Scott Greer is with us on the phone here he is the Daily Caller's uh, Deputy editor and columnist, and uh, he's author of the new book, No Campus for White Men. We we're trying to get him on the phone there for a second. I wasn't sure we had him. We got him. Scott, thank you for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you, man. So talk to me about this for a second. Uh, you've got No Campus for White Men. I, you're talking about the obsession on campus with diversity, victimization, and identity politics. Walk me through what's going on here. Well, what's going on on campus is essentially that identity politics and victimhood culture have taken over higher education. And identity politics refers to uh, the basis and style of politics where everything you do is built around a certain identity you've created for yourself, whether it's racial, ethnic, or sexual identity. That's the core part of your being, and you base all your political agitation around that. And when we see a lot of these kids on college campus, a lot of what they're agitating for is for stuff on a racial basis. I mean, just recently at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, left-wing protesters were demanding free tuition for all African-American and minority students just because on the basis of their identity. And they're able to use this kind of argument based on victimhood culture, which is a new moral culture challenging kind of traditional American norms that we're all, you know, we're all created equal. We all have inherent dignity. Instead, it bases your value and your moral status on how well you can demonstrate that you're a victim. That's why all these college kids are always kind of like, oh, I'm oppressed or I'm a victim or if you say these words, my life's in danger. It's appeal to victimhood culture to show that they're a victim. And thus, they deserve more status and have higher value than everybody else. Did you spend for this book? Did you spend some time on campus? Did you go over uh, and, and see this for yourself a bit or you just research? Mostly research, but I did witness a lot of the stuff just going around uh, campuses in the D.C. area. I actually witnessed a few of the events that happened with when Milo Yiannopoulos tried to visit a few campuses around here, such as American University 
and George Mason and a couple of others. And I saw a lot of the kind of anger just then. And I mean, it, the kind of anger and protest last year kind of are dwarfed by what we've seen this year with riots. And just recently at Middlebury University or Middlebury College, where they assaulted uh, Charles Murray, a conservative scholar and a professor who was escorting him out just based on his political points of view. And uh, what what do you, by the way, you get into, I assume, all these, and I like to uh, appropriate these terms for my own use, like microaggressions, trigger warnings, safe spaces, uh, you know, ge- all the different gender identities that they, I, I'm pretty sure there was a school that, I think maybe it was even Harvard, that said you could click, uh, not, not click, uh, you could check a box for Z as your gender. I mean, it probably was yeah, actually they, clicking because it was probably online, yeah. but, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen all that, but the, the new terminology, this is something that changed from when I was on, I went to Amherst, which is uh, pretty <laughs> pretty left-wing, although not nearly as left-wing as some of these other places, and all this terminology to me is new. Yeah, and all this terminology just came out very recently. I only graduated from a public university in Tennessee four years ago, and I didn't witness this at all. And a lot of this kind of gender-neutral terms where it sounds like it comes from a sci-fi novel. It's like Z or Z. You know, it, it sounds very bizarre, but this is what they're actually teaching kids. <clears throat> and kind of the microaggressions and this kind of focus on it, this is very recent, but it kind of goes along with this uh, idea of victim culture that we're appealing to the suppression. And the reason why we have microaggressions such a focus is that they want to that there's this idea that minorities every day face daily oppression and daily victimization. And what they argue is they say microaggressions is what is what they have to face, which microaggressions are these kind of unintentional slights that they have to deal with, such as uh, they'll claim that if all the boards are white, you know, whiteboards, that's a microaggression. If there's like at their cafeteria doesn't serve certain ethnic food, that's a microaggression. So it kind of goes on to these what would be what would you know, a few years ago have been considered trivial and petty, it it turns that into serious injustices. I remember uh, on campus that there were something called affinity group houses. This was the official term for them. And they were uh, student houses that had a specific uh, ethnicity that they were supposed to, uh, or, yeah, ethnicity uh, that they were supposed to celebrate. So there was uh, a a Latino a, uh, affinity house. They call this is what they call them. I don't know if this is something that exists elsewhere. Mm-hmm. This was at Amherst, and there were these houses where you had everybody living in the and this was on campus, sanctioned by the school. Everybody who lived in the house was of one ethnic background, and people pointed would point this out and say, "Isn't it the whole purpose of this uh, this ecosystem that they're trying to create uh, to be as inclusive and diverse and uh, as, as possible, and you have a a choice of self-segregation happening with different groups on campus who are choosing to live among people who are are ethnically similar to them by choice. This this was, and I always thought this was a bizarre set of circumstances. But my understanding is that this exists at other schools too. Yeah, that's only expanded. I document this in No Campus for White Men. Is that it's only gone further afield now? More students. At every at several universities, a lot of these agitators are demanding separate housing that is exclusively reserved for their own race or ethnicity, and it's also in a lot of cases it's a lot cheaper than regular housing and a lot nicer than other housing. And the reason why they claim they need this is to avoid microaggressions, to avoid the oppression of white people. They need these uh, 
housing reserved just for them. You know, there's not going to be a white-only housing, of course, but there is going to be all these housings that are reserved only for these protected classes. And in a lot of cases, it's cheaper and better housing than everywhere else. But they claim they need this to avoid the terror of microaggression. Yeah, there was actually a – this is – I'm being serious. We had a – a vegan, uh, a vegan house on on uh, it was it was a cam- it was owned by the school, but it was slightly off the main campus. And if you live there, you had to agree to be vegan. And I do remember that I went there because they obviously had parties where there, the the music was good, and there were uh, it was there was a lot of odors, and they of uh, things that people were smoking. And they, they would throw these parties <laughs> though, uh, and and actually they served very good cheese too. I'll have you know, so that was one of the odors. And they, uh, I remember somebody got very upset because there was a, a rumor going around that somebody had cooked meat in the stove. And there was, it, they didn't think it was funny. I mean, it was straight up outrage that they thought somebody had cooked meat in the stove. But this is what, you, I mean, it's, it's one thing to celebrate different lifestyles, cultures, all that. But to have people that are choosing to live in a separate enclave or in a separate housing structure because of any of those choices, it just seems to be so self-defeating for the university. And on the one hand, they're saying, let's bring in people with as many differences as possible. And on the other hand, they're saying, but make sure you surround yourself with people that are just like you in certain contexts because you're, uh, and by the way, it comes from a sense that they're oppressed on the campus. That's what this is all about, usually, except for the vegans. Although, I don't know, maybe vegans feel oppressed too, but not really. (laughs) Maybe. <laughs> yeah. The, well, and the point of this is it doesn't lead to unity, as you were alluding to. It, it leads to more division on campus, and it creates more conflict between student groups on campus. As if you're like, well, we're a group, and this group, you know, and you create the kind of tribalism that leads to a lot of these conflicts that we see on campus. And, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not about bringing people together. It's about dividing people. And it's only reserved exclusively for some students. I have a whole chapter in my book uh, about uh, Greek life. And how a lot of these uh, left-wing students hate Greek life and typically use that as one of their villains in a lot of their uh, demonstrations. And one of the main criticisms is that it's too white, that, you know, there's too many white people there. And that's somehow a – even though not by choice, all these, you know, fraternities and sororities have been desegregated for years. They don't have any policies that explicitly exclude anybody, unlike, you know, a lot of these segregated um, housing that's starting to become a major trend in higher education. But just simply because they end up being too white, that's a major problem, and they want that change. So in a lot of ways, it creates all this division and conflict by dividing people, but it's not reserved for – it's not an option available for all students. Now, uh, what's your recommendation? I assume in a book like this, you have to have some ideas for how these problems can be addressed or how we can make the situation on campus. Look, if diversity and multiculturalism – and inclusiveness is the goal, uh, they're not actually pursuing that goal. They're doing it in very self-defeating ways and also oftentimes, I would offer at least, uh, ways that are self-contradictory. So what are the ways that you would recommend that they go about, assuming that that's the goal that they want to to pursue, what do you recommend in the book? Well, for universities itself, I recommend in the book that uh, colleges need to start respecting different points of view. The type of diversity they want is not a diversity of points of view. They only want, you know, they want to bring all these people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds and kind of agree with the left-wing orthodoxy. I mean, that's why they don't allow conservative speakers on campus, but they all allow, you know, the craziest left-wing speakers, you know, like a Bill Ayers or somebody on campus to speak and treat them like a hero. But So the first part of universities is to respect free speech so there can be a genuine diversity of ideas 
and opinions, and, you know, there's not this stultifying atmosphere of conformity. And what I recommend is this is not going to really come in internally from the schools. This is going to have to come in externally because the schools themselves typically are resistant and they just listen to the campus protesters because that's the loudest pressure group they have to deal with. So what we really need to have is elected officials to start exerting more pressure on these schools and, you know, threaten them with defunding if they have really bad examples of them not respecting free speech or infringing on the constitutional rights of students. So that's, that's the point I argue that is most fruitful in the short term is that elected officials get involved and start exerting pressure on these schools to start respecting free speech, to not promote a lot of these divisive ideas that just tear all the students apart and create conflict. So hopefully we have a few examples of that. I mean, you know, President Trump's uh, tweet last month in response to the UC Berkeley riot, you know, threatening possible defunding is kind of the message we need. A lot of commentators didn't like that, but that's the message that a lot of these administrators need to hear in order that they have a backbone to stand up to these protesters. Scott Greer is the Daily Caller's deputy editor, and he's a columnist. He's author of the new book, No Campus for White Men. Scott, thank you for calling in. Thank you. You know, it's one thing when I was on campus, we had, uh, not only did I go through the normal student orientation, and as a freshman in particular, it, it is a straight-up brainwashing process that you go through, where they try to, if you have a, any sense of your, you know, if you have any sense of already who you are and what you think about the world, you come into contact with all these people who are telling you, oh no, you have to think this, and that should be jarring to anyone, I would think, but uh, I, I wish that they would take a different approach to, well... For one thing, the fact that I was on this campus that I believe used to buy kegs for students, I mean, the, the ones who were of age to drink, but the, the, the school would give kegs to the students at one point, you know, years before I got there. They stopped doing that, obviously, for liability reasons. Um, but at least the, maybe that's like an urban legend on the campus, but it's not actually true. But that I was never, we never once had a discussion that was an honest sit down with an upper class, and I'm talking about as freshmen in particular, with upperclassmen who would be respected by the freshmen, where they would just say things like, you know, boot and rally is not a good thing. That's where you drink until you throw up and you have to go. You know, drinking until you black out is actually really dangerous. Uh, you know, you're, you're not really more fun to be around when you've had, you know, more than, let's say, three for college kids, I don't know, two or three drinks. It, it's You're not hilarious. This isn't a good thing for you to do. And most importantly, from a safety perspective, I just wish there had been more of a focus on if, if you're going to if you're going to drink, which uh, I, there was so much drinking at my college that I don't even know. I don't know what it's like elsewhere. I can just speak to my own experience. But I feel and I know this is a diversion of what we're just talking about. But I always think about this. They just don't tell these kids um, you know, they, they fill them with all this left wing propaganda. And there's a lot of the uh, diversity, multiculturalism cult that they're trying to pull these kids into in different ways and and they're of course living in a campus now where increasingly they have these weird speech codes and everything but there a lot of them are going to be out there partying and drinking and doing all this stuff and they that, that's not really addressed in a way that i thought was effective at all I mean, there was a guy on my freshman floor i think he had the campus ambulance called for him like three times in the first month you know just people are just getting weight and it's dangerous i mean you know sometimes these you know, there there have been cases where people have have dr drank to death at these places, but even if they're not drinking to death, it's just you know a lot of these kids. And uh, I saw this with with some of the with some of the classmates that I had. 
they just went wild. I mean, they went to campus and just went wild. And it just would have been nice, or not nice, uh, nice too, but I think it would have been useful and effective for them to hear some uh, some counseling early on about, look, have fun. You're in college. Everyone loves this and everything. But, you know, don't go too crazy. Take care of yourself. Take care of your health. Don't. And also the other thing about nothing good happening past 2 a.m., although I've also heard 1 a.m. I've, I've even heard people say midnight. But 2 a.m., definitely true. Nothing good happens after 2 a.m. Just tell all college kids that. All right. Uh, hitting a break here, team. Uh, light up the lines if you want to chat. 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. I, I was thinking maybe, maybe I had guessed that the outrage meter uh, would be, you know, I, I had guessed the outrage meter would be higher than it would end up being with the firing of the uh, U.S. attorneys. I was thinking that would be the case. I tweeted out uh, right when I saw the news story. Um, let me just share that so I can be clear with you exactly. I want to give you the exact verbiage here. Do do do. Okay, got it. Uh, Trump administration ordered 46 holdover U.S. attorneys to quit. Uh, that's the New York Times headline, and I tweeted out in response to it. Nothing improper about this, but within minutes there will be tweets about how this is fascism. Uh, you heard from a former AUSA, assistant U.S. attorney, Andrew McCarthy, before. There's nothing improper about this. It's totally fine. And then I was joking around about how, well, Trump did it, right? So if Trump does it, it has to be fascism. If if Trump did it, it must be really terrible. And, oh, my. Um, <laughs> sure enough, Anderson Cooper's official Twitter account, this is what this is what the, the tweet is. Quote, this could not have been handled any worse. Anger mounts over DOJ's firing of 46 U.S. attorneys without warning. Uh, A law enforcement source charged that this could not have been handled any worse because there was little warning. Many prosecutors found out through the media reports that they had to resign today. Uh, What are they? So what? The pre- they serve at the pleasure of the president. That that's that's it means what it sounds like it means, as in the president gets to say bye bye. Uh, this couldn't have been handled any worse. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, they're saying I guess they're saying it was sudden. Okay, well there's a there's an acting U.S. attorney. Uh, 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 yes, acting U.S. attorney that'll be able to take over the role and all. That's a a career a career person not. An appointee. Appointees come and go with administrations. You know, we had Andy on before to get the real uh, straight scoop on this. And appointees come and go with the administration. That's just we wish it didn't have to be the case, but it is the case. Uh, But sure enough, this falls into that big bucket of issues and and instances where Trump does something. It has to be bad or the Trump administration does it. It has to be bad. Anger over the firing of U.S. attorneys. You know, I guess they could maybe say it's it's a slow news day, but it's really not. There's a, a lot of interesting things happened today, and so to be in this position, I gotta say, um, strikes me as well. Like a, it's just the anti-Trump hysteria continues on. It, it hasn't changed one bit. So here we are. Um, if you're on hold with a call, stay with us. 844-900-2825. If you want to call me, got some spots open. Also, please download the uh, podcast uh, or listen on demand on the iHeartRadio app. Um, you can subscribe on iTunes. Bucks Accent with American Now. 
the name of the show, and we return to it in just a couple minutes after this break. Be right back. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's, that's why. That's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team, I want to talk to you about a very uh, serious issue that I've been reading up on and, and trying to learn more about. Uh, it's tragic, and, and it's an epi- it is a true epidemic, and it is the uh, opioid crisis that the country is currently in. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard the numbers, uh, recorded deaths from opioids surpassed 30,000 in 2015, according to the CDC. Uh, so you have more people now overdosing in some recent years than are dying in car accidents. Uh, and this is from primarily what is a pre- primarily what are prescription drugs. I, I, I didn't know much about this until recently. I know it's been getting attention in the news because of all the uh, terrible loss of life. I wanted to learn more about this. So we're bringing on Dr. Bertha Madras. She's a professor of uh, psychobiology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and she's former deputy director for Demand Reduction, which is for prevention and treatment in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Madras, thank you for calling in. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Uh, uh, fentanyl, which I, I had never even heard of until it started getting covered because of the crisis over the last couple of years with opioids. Tell us, tell us a bit of, about this drug. I, I read that it's a hundred times stronger than morphine. That just sounds impossible. <laughs> well, it's not impossible. It's certainly not a laughing matter. Fentanyl was produced by uh, Paul Janssen. Uh, in uh, around the late 1950s as a very powerful uh, analgesic painkiller for a number of reasons, for uh, breakthrough cancer pain and for sedation in people who are undergoing procedures. It was very, very um, difficult to make. He, he, He took 13 different steps to make the chemistry. And so nobody cared, and then somebody published a way to make it with four chemical steps, which made it much easier for ordinary chemists, not phenomenal chemists. And after that, uh, fentanyl began to be produced in clandestine labs. And we had one, the first wave of fentanyl deaths was 2006-2007, which I was intimately involved in when I was serving in the government. And we, uh, there was a discovery made of a super lab in Mexico that was producing it. And after that lab was taken out, plus a whole combination of um, demand reduction alerts and, and uh, awareness and issues of uh, medical examiners and physicians, that died out very rapidly. It, it, it surged uh, within a few months and it died. Now we're having a very different story. We're not only having fentanyl being made, but we're having there are about 10 different other fentanyl analogs. They're being produced primarily in China. They're being shipped either directly to the U.S. or to Mexico, and they're a lot easier to make than it is to grow opium and poppy fields and worry about overhead uh, planes wiping out the fields, worrying about shipping huge quantities of opium across borders. These these drugs are so potent. They're made in such they're so potent in very small quantities. One fingerprint's weight 
the weight of one fingerprint is enough to produce an active dose. And I've weighed my fingerprint in my lab in order to prove that that was an accurate description. That's that's astonishing. Uh, how how addictive is uh, or are these uh, classes or this class of drugs? Well, they they work exactly the same way that heroin and morphine work. They work on what's called the mu opioid receptor. So they're highly addictive, but because they are much more potent than morphine and they are more potent than heroin, the people who are using them do get a more extreme euphoria, a more extreme high. And so there is a sense that this is, in fact, a better um, opium high. Now, are they more addictive? We know that the more that gets into the brain, the faster it gets in, the more potent it is. There's almost a a one-on-one relationship with addictive potential. So the addiction rates are very high, but much more important is that the deadliness of the drugs is higher. How does that How does that work? And that's, I mean, we're seeing, um, you, you are obviously familiar with these numbers, tens of thousands of people are dying from opioid yeah. over, overdoses. I mean, this is, 30, this is a public health crisis. 33,000, in some cases, as much or more than gunshot wounds. So people who are gassed at gunshot wounds, should be uh, 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 as aghast at the opiate overdoses. How, how, do they, how does it kill? It, it targets many parts of the brain and the body, but it, primarily it kills by hitting the part of the brain that controls breathing and uh, heart rate. And why does it kill more than morphine or heroin? Because let's say you have a 300-pound uh, sumo wrestler holding a door to a room that you want to get into. A 13-year-old teenager, let's call it naloxone, who weighs 100 pounds is not going to be able to fight off the sumo wrestler. And in the case of fentanyl, fentanyl is like a sumo wrestler. It binds so tightly to its target because it is so more, uh, so much more potent that the naloxone, in some cases, can't surmount it. It also kills much faster because it hits the targets with so much potency, and that's the problem. Is fentanyl the worst of these drugs, or is just the most well-known? Is there one that's considered either the the most potent or the biggest problem for the current opioid crisis? Well, there are at least 10 fentanyl analogs. Analogs means that they're derivatives. They look like fentanyl, but you add a carbon here, you add another group there, an iodine here, and you can make them even more potent than fentanyl. And right now, I don't know which is the most potent, but furanil, fentanyl, there's some reports that it's a thousand times more potent than morphine, as opposed to fentanyl, which is 50 to 100 times more potent. So it's it's an astonishing uh, it, it's an astonishing chemistry that's given rise to uh, 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 an absolute uh, preventable, lamentable, horrible crisis in our country, and this has to stop. The first thing we need to do is is interdict these drugs before they get into the country. The problem is that they're, they're primarily made outside because it sounds like it's a pretty straightforward process. From what you said of the four, but the, is the lab is it like a meth lab? Does it require some? Are there some telltale signs? How difficult is it to set up one of these labs? It's it's obvious. It, it, the chemistry is is more difficult than meth. 
but it is not difficult for qualified chemists to make. And most of it is being made outside the country. So we have to secure our borders in order to prevent the influx of these drugs. That's number one. Number two is that people who are buying heroin don't even know that it's being laced with fentanyl or these furanyl fentanyl or carfentanyl or all the other, you know, I can, I can go on and on listing all the other types of fentanyls. So they, they're not aware of it. And not only are they not aware of it, but the, the amount that is effective is so tiny that you can have hot spots. You can't distribute it evenly. Let's say you have three grains of sugar and you're asked to sprinkle it in, in a bowl of flour. You could have three grains in one part of the bowl or you can have three grains evenly distributed. It's tough to do. So some people may be getting um, heroin laced with fentanyl that has 10 times more fentanyl than uh, someone else, even though they're buying from the same supplier. It's, so the dosing must be, given the potency of these substances, uh, I mean, I, I know this is being used illegally and people are using it recreationally, the yep. dosing must be a very difficult thing for some, hence so many of the overdoses, obviously. It must be difficult to know how much of this you can take without risking your life. You have no idea. You are literally walking into a cave without a flashlight, and you may fall into a deep hole. You may encounter a bear. You may encounter tarantulas. You have no idea what the risks you are taking because there is no control. Even the people who are lacing the heroin with fentanyl don't know if they've laced it evenly. What is the answer here? I mean, I know that's probably too simple of a way to put it to you, but what are the steps that can be taken now? I know that Florida is considering criminalizing uh, the sale of this. If somebody dies, you can be charged with manslaughter. I saw that earlier this week. There's a law enforcement side. There's a treatment side. What needs to be done? Well, I think there are many steps along the way. I think the immediate steps is to interdict, to prevent the U.S. Postal Service from delivering these things through the mail system to seal the borders for drugs. When I'm sorry, the postal service is delivering this stuff? People the sending, post- I mean, obviously not intentionally, but the people send this not through the in- mail? They can send it through the mail, but not through FedEx, believe it or not, because FedEx has a, um, a tracking system that enables you to track from the exact source. The postal service does not have those kind of chain of custody tracking that um, that uh, the private delivery systems have. So that's a problem. Is it a powder? What's the most common form of this that people use for street use? It, it, it's it's a it's a powder that looks essentially like it, it's a crystalline form that looks essentially like a powder. Ah, so sorry, you were saying the postal service needs to get its act together with this. Postal service needs to get its act together. Border guards need to interdict all uh, drug shipments across the border from Mexico because Mexico is still a major source of it. That's number two. Number three is that we have to distribute naloxone to prevent overdoses, and we have to distribute a lot more than we did for heroin or for um, prescription opioids because a single dose may not be enough. Number four is if you are rescued from an, um, an, uh, an overdose with Narcan, by a family, by a friend, by an, uh, you know, a, a first responder, be it a policeman or EM, uh, EMS, you must, must 
have an opportunity to get into treatment right away because otherwise there are going to be cases of re-overdosing, re-overdosing, and each time a person overdoses, there is some, some concerns that every time your brain gets cut off from oxygen, there's more and more damage done to the brain. So preventing overdoses is critical and also preventing relapse to use. Uh, doctor, um, just I, there's this piece I want to ask you about, and then we're going to have to uh, let, let you get back to everything else you got going on. But the Washington Post writes here that the fentanyl crisis is so deadly in Canada that funeral directors need the antidote. I mean, this is actually considered a, a hazardous. When someone overdoses, it's a, like a hazmat scene now because that's, that's how true. potent this drug is. I'd never heard of such a thing. That is, as I say, if something is in a quantity the size of the amount that is equivalent to a fingerprint or a few fingerprints, then how can you protect yourself from it? Right. Wow. You know, that's a... I've used in the lab MPTP, which can cause Parkinson's disease, a few fluffs of the, of the powder that get into your nose or into your eyes can, can, develop, can start to develop a neurological disorder. So you have to wear um, face masks and gloves and eye protection and all that. With fentanyl, you have to use the same precautions because it can be deadly to people who handle it. Dr. Bertha Madras is a professor of psychobiology at the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Madras, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for uh, sharing your expertise tonight. Uh, hello. Yes, thank you very much for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, uh, team, I know that was it's, it's intense stuff, but I've been wanting to talk to you about that. If you see what's going on in the headlines this country, uh, this is not like anything in, in my lifetime, certainly, in terms of a drug epidemic. Maybe crack in the 80s, but this seems to be even beyond that in terms of the, the deaths from it. So it's a very important public policy, health, law enforcement issue, and we'll continue to watch it. And now we all have, including me, uh, some background on the chemistry and the reality of these drugs. Uh, we're going to hit a break and come back and uh, close it up. So I wanted to spend a little more time. By the way, that was... I mean. That I hope a lot of people get to hear the the interview with the doctor there. I didn't I didn't know that stuff, and I pay uh, I my my life is paying attention to the news and researching, and and uh, I knew there was an opioid epidemic, but the the scale and also the intensity that was just I'm still sitting here just in shock that that's going on in this country right now. I mean, thirty three thousand people that's and the potency of the drug. They're, they're, they're at at funeral homes. The funeral director, what I was saying to you beforehand, uh, has to keep the antidote on hand in case there's residual drug on the person who has, has died from the overdose. Th- think about this. I mean, this is, uh, I've never, and then that thing that, she, that the doctor told us about, the neurological, the powder that if you get in your nose can cause neurological disease. I'd never heard of that either. This is like the most terrifying stuff I've heard of in quite a while. So anyway, um but I think that was it was really it's important. It's it's changed my understanding now. Every time I read about this opioid epidemic, because you see the headlines and you see people talking about it, but you know, that's necessary uh, necessary information, necessary background on what is going on. Uh, wow. All right, making a making a hard turn here because we have to, and uh, we've only got a few more minutes together today. Um, and as I said, please do uh, download the show and uh, tell a couple friends about it, and also follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash uh, Buck Sexton. Um, but uh, so we're doing a turn here into uh, Scott Pruitt, EPA head. This was only a matter of time before he was going to get pushed on this issue, and we knew he would. 
They're asking him about, or he's talking about climate change. He's the head of EPA. Climate change for the left, and you will hear me say this many times uh, going forward, team, is a religion for people who think they're too smart for religion. And he said the following. Click clip 43, please. To one other thing, just, just to get to the nitty gritty. Do you believe that it's been proven that CO2 is the primary control knob for climate? Do you believe that? No, I, no, I think that, that measuring with precision uh, human activity on the climate is something very challenging to do, and there's trem tremendous disagreement about the, the degree of impact. Uh, so, so, no, I would not agree uh, that it's a primary contributor uh, to, the, to the global warming that we see. Okay. All right. But we don't know that yet as far as we, we, need, we need to continue the debate and continue the review and the analysis. If you read the IPCC report that the U.N. puts out, the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, if you read, really read, not, not the talking heads who read the talking heads who read the scientist who didn't do the study but knows a scientist who knows a scientist who did a study and has access to the data, because that's how the climate change stuff usually works. If you read through that whole chain, uh, and you, you'll see that there is absolutely uncertainty as to the degree, e even within the climate change believer ranks, there's uncertainty to the degree that CO2 affects climate. But they just, of course, because otherwise it's unimportant and who cares, they insist on hitting this, uh, hitting this note over and over that CO2 is the primary driver. Well, what percentage? You're saying this is mathematical and it's scientific. It's the how much of climate is driven by CO2 emissions then? G give me a number. And they can't give a number. And what would be give – me, give me projections for what the climate will be in five years given our current rate of CO2 emissions, and let's hold you to that. They won't do that, and if they did, they'd be wrong, and then they'll say, well, we're wrong, but we have to look at the data again. We were basing it on me to change that. So anyway, we're going to have to revisit the Pruitt EPA because that's going to be a fascinating ideological fight. And he's going to get so much hate from the left. You know, people that refuse to use plastic bags at the grocery store. Oh, they're just going to, like, shake a, shake a fist of fury, man. They're going to be like, yo, Pruitt, dude, you're, like, the worst, and I hate you and your stupidness. Um, but we got to leave it for there uh, until Monday. My friends, you know, as always, Shields High.